This is Judaism Unbound, Episode 5, Leviticus. We'd like to open today's podcast, our fifth, with a special note to our listeners on two topics. First of all, thank you so much for listening to the podcast and making it so popular. Thanks to your subscriptions and reviews, we have gotten iTunes attention, and we are being featured currently in the new and noteworthy section of iTunes Religion and Spirituality category. So thank you so much for everything you're doing to increase the popularity of the podcast. We'd love to ask you at this point, if you haven't already, to subscribe to the podcast, download episodes leave us five-star ratings, and even take the time to give us a positive review on iTunes. All of those things help our podcast get recognized by iTunes and through iTunes get found by other people who are listening and interested in the topic that we have. Another way that you could help is to like our Judaism Unbound Facebook page and share the news of our podcast postings every time we post a new episode on Friday and a new Facebook posting goes up. So thank you so much for spreading the word of the podcast. Second, we'd like to inform our listeners that in the editing process of today's episode, we realized that a couple of words got by us that we failed to define while we were talking about them. Generally, we try not to do that. And so at the top of the show, we'd like to just define those words. The first one is talit or talis. That's a Jewish prayer shawl. It's worn generally around the shoulders during Jewish prayers and has fringes on the ends. And the second word that we didn't define was bubby, which is a Yiddish word for grandmother. So later in the podcast, you'll hear a little bit of talk of the bubby talit or the bubby talis, and that just means the grandmother prayer shawl or the kind of prayer shawl that a grandmother would wear. And now, on with the podcast. Welcome back. I'm Dan Liebenson. And I'm Lex Rofus. We're thrilled to be welcoming Professor Vanessa Oakes as the second ever guest on the Judaism Unbound podcast. Professor Oakes is a professor in the Department of Religious Studies at the University of Virginia and the author of a book that has been enormously influential in the world of Jewish innovation in the last decade. The book is called Inventing Jewish Ritual, and although she's written quite a number of other books and articles, that's the one that we'll be primarily focusing on today. Vanessa, thanks so much for joining us. It's a real honor to have you. You're welcome. So just to remind our listeners and bring you up to speed, Vanessa, on where we've been and where we're trying to go, uh, this is episode five of the Judaism Unbound podcast. In the first two episodes, Lex and I tried to set the context for what we're talking about. Uh, we talked about it as analogous to the book of Genesis and saying this is about uh, the history, uh, the Jewish history, our own history, and how we're coming into this set of questions that we're exploring. Um, in our next two episodes, B'nai Lappi came on and helped us set the context for the section that we are talking about as Exodus, which is really about leaving behind something that seems to not be working for a lot of people. And we explored both with Rabbi Lappi and together, Lex and I, um, the possibility that those who are leaving are not necessarily abandoning or betraying, but they may be expressing a form of dissent through exit, and that actually they may be quite open to Jewish living in one way or another, but not the way that it's being put in front of them by existing Jewish organizations that are following a tried-and-true pathway. And so as we go forward in our mythic sort of reenactment of the books of the Bible and saying, well, what happens after you leave behind that thing that you're leaving behind? Um, 
the next step in the book of the Bible in the books of the Bible is the book of Leviticus, which in our mythic reinterpretation we're talking about as the opportunity to say, okay, now that we've left behind what we've left behind, how do we build up something new? And we're thinking about Leviticus as essentially where that new thing is beginning to be set down, is beginning to be worked through. Certainly, we're not necessarily endorsing everything that's in the actual book of Leviticus. We're just trying to use this mythologically as a as a framing device for, for where we are. And we were especially intrigued to talk to you at this point because of your work on inventing Jewish ritual. You're thinking about how Jewish ritual is invented uh, or how it otherwise comes about. And uh, in particular, I... I wanted to start by asking you if you could just reflect on the title of your book, Inventing Jewish Ritual. Why is it that you chose the word invent rather than other words that you might have chosen? The initial title I had, the working title in my mind, and actually when I think about the book, it's the title I still use uh, because I worked on the book for so long with that other title in mind, was I thought it was going to be called New Jewish Ritual. And I thought I was going to simply chronicle all the new rituals that had appeared over um, uh, a period of, oh, between 15 and 20, maybe even 30 years. Uh, but then I realized looking back for, uh, looking, um, searching for a, a framework for all these new rituals, uh, is, is I saw that the, the process of invention or the mindset of invention characterize these rituals much more than novelty uh, for for its own sake. It struck me too that all ritual, not just the rituals that we see appearing in our lives, rituals that are uh, on either reshaped in our time or, or, or newly inserted, uh, I believe that all ritual at one time, at one point in time, was actually invented. It was it was created uh, bit bit by bit, piece by piece, but these were inventions, they were improvisations, uh, they were uh they were uh they there were processes which 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 uh which drew upon familiar practices as well as cultural practices that were familiar to people they drew upon real needs that people had in their lives uh, and thus for instance if we just go back to the, the first time that the israelites are told to say uh use matzah on passover well, we we see nothing in the text which suggests, like, oh my gosh, like, what's matzah? Where do we get it? You know, where do we buy it? Can, can, you know, it was a it was a practice that uh, eating this particular kind of bread was was a practice people were familiar with, and at some point in time, using that food stub substance becomes sacralized, and it cat and it catches on. Now, from where we sit uh, in in our times, we don't think that way about rituals of the past. We assume that a real, a proper, a holy, an authentic Jewish ritual emerged because God spoke it, Moses heard it, Moses, Moses pronounced it, 
and, and the people did that. Even though now we in our own lives wouldn't, uh, would be very uncomfortable if a ritual was somehow laid down before us and there is this expectation that, that we, that we would follow it. But I think we do have this fantasy because we, we love our rituals and we cherish them. We, we have this fantasy that they came down, uh, pure and holy in, in a form that we should be following now and that, and that our doing this pure and holy ritual connects us, uh, to all of our ancestors all the way back to the past and, and connects us to, to, to the will of God. Uh, one question I have related to that is with ritual, one piece, one piece of ritual that your book emphasizes is ritual items, is material culture as you describe it. And in one part of the book that I really loved, you lay out how certain people have conceptualized ritual objects and what makes them holy, um, as embodied by um, a man named Samuel Heilman in a study that he did in the 80s. And you propose a different way. Can you walk us through both his his hierarchy and your own way of understanding ritual items? So the sociologist Sam Heilman uh, wrote a study in 1988 called Jews in Judaica, Who Owns and Buys What? And it was, to me, a very exciting article because he was talking about Jewish material culture. And his, he, he created a classification of, of those objects, and he used quite traditional, uh, traditional names for those, uh, for those categories. So in his first category was clay kodesh, uh, holy, holy objects. Examples would be a Torah scroll or a mezuzah parchment. Uh, so these are objects that are holy because they have God's name written on them and they're holy whether, whether or not they're being used at the time or not. His next category is Tashmishe Kedusha, that is accoutrements of these, of these holy objects, which might uh, be, say, a cover of a Torah or the case which uh, which houses the uh, the scroll of parchment that's uh, on which the Shema is written. His next category is called Tashmishe Mitzvah, ritual implements. Uh, so uh, those might be objects that are not in themselves considered holy, but are used for holy purposes. For instance, the lulav and the etrog, the uh, palm, myrtle, and willow that constitute the uh, the lulav and the etrog, the the citron. So, if you put that object down on the ground, you haven't done something terrible, and you could throw it out in your compost after after the holiday of Sukkot, and you haven't done anything terrible. But for a brief period of time, these implements are useful within a within a, a religious ceremony. Uh, finally, uh, he has a category called Rishut, optional ritual implements. And these objects, he says, really, they're, they're not, uh, they're, they're quasi-sacred. They're, they're quasi-sacred, but they somehow embellish or enhance 
or intensify the performance of a Jewish ritual. And they have a sacred-like feel to them. So, for instance, the cutting board that you put on your Sabbath table uh, would be an optional ritual implement that, that sort of that feels holy or your your candlesticks for for the sabbath or the box the piggy bank that you use to collect coins for for tzedakah for for charity uh, in 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 his um in his classification the the holy objects are the ones that count the most and the ones that are peripheral are are the ones that are are, are from his perspective i think sort of are there free-floating symbols of Jewish identity and belonging, but they're not central to a, a Jewish core? In my uh, explanation of Jewish objects, I, 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 have, I have a different way of thinking about them. I categorize Jewish objects as those that are intentionally constructed, and some are, in this first category, explicitly Jewish. That is, they establish Jewish identities, they serve as reminders that one is in a Jewish setting, they facilitate and instigate and uh, call into being Jewish, Jewish ways of, uh, of, of behaving and, and, and thinking. Uh, so for me, there are many objects that could, uh, that could fit in that category. A, a, a loaf of challah, a box of matzah, anything on which Hebrew letters would be written, uh, a ketubah, a, uh, a free calendar from your kosher butcher or the funeral parlor. Uh, so they're, they're obviously Jewish objects in some kind of way. I, there's another category that I created called the implicit Jewish object. Now, these are objects that don't necessarily, to the, to the naked eye, they're not necessarily Jewish objects. But in the context of a Jewish life, they, they become quite meaningful. For instance, if you walk into a Jewish home and you see many, many books, then you understand that this is that these objects are implicitly affirming the value of education and text in Jewish life. The reason I am comfortable with my particular alternative way of thinking about Jewish objects is uh, is that anyone can play using uh, my criteria for for objects. That is to say, with, Heil, with uh, Professor Heilman's criteria, you need to know a lot about Judaism to uh, to know the rules of the objects, uh, to know which is he- which is heavier in, in the holy category and not. Whereas with a more uh, open categorization, people can feel that they have uh, um, much more ownership. Of in the in the act of creating Jewish uh, material identities in in their homes or in their workplaces or on their bodies in terms of clothes and, and jewelry, so it's it's a more democratic um, classification. So that that connects to a really important point that Dan and I have been talking about in some other podcasts, which is this idea that, as you mentioned. Um, possessing knowledge might not actually be the secret to Jewish 
ritual to Jewish innovation to Jewish meaning. Um, and I wanted to bring up a, a, a particular quote from your book, which I think relates this point very well, which is that you mentioned that it's individuals with less training and background spirit experience, less training and Jewish background, who are best positioned to become Jewish ritual innovators, not those with an expansive Jewish knowledge base. And before I asked you to expand, I wanted to just mention how much that resonated with me, because in, in my recent experience, I've been interacting with a variety of different kinds of Jews, um, working on some projects that I'm interested in um, related to what I'm calling a bar 26 uh, for myself. And, and, and it's going to be a, a double bar mitzvah kind of thing. And a number of my friends are joining, joining along. And um, what I noticed is that those who were most engaged in traditional forms of Judaism had in many ways, the least creative understandings of what bar 26 might mean. For them, as I framed it, they're like, okay, so I'll go to a synagogue. I'll experience some form of second bar mitzvah, bat mitzvah, maybe read Torah again, um, put some new spin on it, talk about how I've grown, whatever. Other people are like, oh, cool. I'm going to do a project about, I'm going to do a learning project related to Jewish journalism. I'm going to do something social justice. Like they didn't think of a synagogue at all. And so I'm curious what you think the ramifications are of the two different ways of understanding Jewish ritual objects and maybe Jewish ritual more generally, which maybe I'm paraphrasing, are sort of that which possesses God, that which possesses tradition is inherently holy and that which doesn't is for lack of a better word, profane, whole, separate. And that's maybe to some extent what Haum is describing. And an alternative perspective, which is not that that which connects to God or tradition is always best, but that which provides meaning in our lives, regardless of its ties to the past, might be another way of looking at it. I'm curious um, if you think the connection I'm drawing is a reasonable one. Well, let me let me bite this off bit by bit. You raise the idea of someone who is less learned in Jewish practice or less experienced in Jewish practice, that that person might have more capacity to be an inventor. I believe you're right, and let me tell you why. If you are deeply learned in practices, for one, you have a sense of what's right. It's, it might not even be a, it might not even be a, an intellectual sense. It's, it's an, an embodied sense. If you're always used to, if you're always used to standing for the Kaddish, the mourner's prayer, and suddenly you see everybody sitting, you're just, you're, you're angry. How can you do this? This is a, this is, this is disrespectful. This is a desecration. Uh, or if you see, for instance, someone putting, 
sitting on the floor with a sea door and putting the sea door on the floor. You, 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 you rush to pick it up. You kiss it. You can't, you can't do this. This isn't what we do. So you've got a lot of visceral responses to what's permitted and what's not permitted. You also know that historically, there, or you believe that historically, there must be some proper perspective by which innovation is is permitted. There must be certain rules and, and regulations. Whether in, in fact those processes have always, changes always come about through, through a, through proper procedure or not, many people with, with, with deep learning and lots of experience, uh, believe that that must, that that must be the case. Uh, finally, those with a lot of learning are probably assuming that if change is going to happen, it's got to happen from from top down. Who are they to innovate when there are rabbis and and teachers and those who really know and those who have the authority of the community and possibly even they may say to themselves and possibly God to to make these changes. Uh, if you don't know so much and you haven't experienced that much, you can say, "Hey, that's a cool idea. Uh, why don't why don't we do it?" Uh, you can you can try you can try something out. Let me give you an example. I'm part of a um, a chavura or a little minion in Charlottesville of of. Uh, families with children. My, my husband and I are probably the only people who are of, of, uh, of who are much older and whose children are grown. And I got a message today, an, an, an email message today, that the group was going to have a, uh, a Shabbat afternoon Purim celebration, and that people should wear costumes and perform skits, and there would be a Megillah reading, and and singing and so forth. And and my own. My own feeling about this initial feeling was, you can't do this. How come no one asked me? Uh, you can't have a, you can't celebrate Purim on, on a Shabbat. And by the way, this, it's not even Purim that day. It's a day that was, it was convenient to you. This is, this is a, this is a terrible thing. So I, um, I, I thought about it, and then I did recognize that this notion of on-demand Judaism uh, has been cropping up. That is to say, there are many college Hillels that will celebrate Hanukkah before Hanukkah if the actual holiday falls during um, during um, exams or uh, during winter break. Or at my university, Tu B'Shvat was held long after Tu B'Shvat, I think, because there was a big game on the day of Tu B'Shvat, and it just it, it didn't fit in. But, but I also know many families, and, and you hear about this more and more, families that will get together and have their Seder on a weekend because Passover falls during falls during the week, and it's not convenient for them. And they've decided that it's more important for them to get together. So I, uh, with 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 these ideas in mind, I wrote to one of the uh, minion members uh, named Rebecca Class, and I asked her how did it come about. And if I may, I'd like to read what she said to me. She said the decision was a collective one. The minion decided it would be good to use a typical minion time slot, that is Shabbat, so as not to add another event to busy families' calendars. The term on-demand Judaism captures what we're doing. The thinking was, 
uh, that we have to stay away from weeknights. Parents would keep their children home because it's a weeknight with homework and early to bed and so forth. And that way, we we didn't even consider the uh, the, the actual day of, of of Purim, and the group was 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 okay with this. Uh, and, and she said that this brings Judaism to people's lives, but in an a la carte, bend the rules kind of fashion. Well, my response to this quietly was. Can we? Can you actually do this? And I did some research on what happens when Purim actually falls on Shabbat. And I think the regular Purim doesn't fall on Shabbat, but Shushan Purim, the Purim of world cities, actually can fall on Shabbat every so often, and, and it did in 2008. And the rabbis came up with a solution, and, and I, I didn't even know about this. It's called Purim Mishulash. So essentially, there really isn't even such a big problem about observing Purim on Shabbat. Uh, but in my mind, since I had never seen it done or heard of it done, I assumed that I in, in, that I assumed very self-righteously that it simply could not be done. Uh, my community's uh, choice then to do Purim on Shabbat is not pr- problematic. It is problematic to hold, a, from my perspective, as, as a learned person, it's, it's problematic to hold a Jewish holiday on the day that you see fit. But, but maybe I need to, maybe I need to give that up. I, 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 I don't know. Uh, all I do know is that the families that do celebrate Passover when it's convenient, and my community that's celebrating Purim when it's convenient to them, they are having a full-throated, full-bodied, uh, Jewish experience. Vanessa, it strikes me that, um, what you're describing there's another another element to it, which is that um, I mean, you could look at it as on-demand Judaism, but you could also look at it as these people are Americans, right? And their experience of the way holidays work in America is that they're always either on the first Monday of whatever, you know, or the last Thursday of whatever, and that to some extent, what they're doing may also be influenced by a different mental image of how holidays work rather and and it's not this sacred day right i hadn't thought about it but you're absolutely you're absolutely right in america uh holidays are are moved around uh you're you're absolutely right about that i i hadn't i hadn't thought about that clearly that that must be where uh where where folks have gotten this notion that that a holy day is is when is when you observe it one possibility is that they understand from America that holidays um, are not only sort of movable as to the calendar date, right, but that they're also scheduled in a way that is actually convenient, right, to create a three-day weekend or whatever the principles are that govern American holidays. And what they're seeing with the Jewish schedule is that it's, it's a different mentality about what makes a holiday a holiday. Well, let me explore that a bit further. Uh, for instance, I've never heard of any Jewish group moving Yom Kippur around. You know, let's fast on Saturday and not on Friday because it's it, it would be it would be more convenient. Uh, I, I think about Yom Kippur uh, for those who observe it, and even for those who sort of observe it. I think of many of our student athletes who will fast on on Yom Kippur 
and and go to um, go to workouts uh, still, but 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 fast nonetheless. I think there is a belief on that certain days are still holy, that that certain time is is still holy. Uh, it's just been it's it's suspendable uh, for 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 other days. Although it's interesting to think about. Um... Well, on two levels. One is that there's a famous story in the Talmud about the establishment of the date of Yom Kippur one year. And there's a a real question as to whether the day is sacred on its own or whether it's made sacred because of a way that the system worked in those days where witnesses would go and look at whether when the new moon came and count from there to the proper day for a, a given holiday, in this case, Yom Kippur, and that actually there is a possibility that um, it it might have been established that year on the wrong date, but because that was when the rabbis established it, that was when it was going to be observed. And one rabbi essentially forces another rabbi to violate the day that he thinks is Yom Kippur. So I think that's sort of an interesting story that we have even about Yom Kippur in in the Talmud. We also have that notion for Passover that there's a Passover Sheni, a Pesach Sheni, mm-hmm. that if you could if you couldn't fulfill the Passover the first time around. You, you you get it. You get a second try. Right. So it strikes me. So that's one thing. And the, the other um, thing is, I, I just sort of think ahead. I mean, it's interesting that um, when you look at at the Jewish world today, right, maybe 50 years ago, right, it would have been unthinkable for a lot of people to not come to synagogue, at least on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And today, I think that's probably less the case. And there are a lot more people that are not coming to synagogue on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur than they're used to. And I would imagine that the attendance is lower when Yom Kippur doesn't fall on a weekend or Rosh Hashanah doesn't fall on a weekend. And you could imagine, I mean, I could imagine a situation where there's a synagogue that says, Hey, you know, we actually would get a lot more people coming to synagogue for Yom Kippur if we observed Yom Kippur on the nearest Saturday. And it is unthinkable, I think, for a lot of people today to even imagine such a thing. But I wonder, is it really that much more unthinkable than having the Pesach Seder over the weekend or or, or something else? Or is it just that, um, you know, first... So certain things are, are more easily thinkable, so they happen first. But does that mean that Yom Kippur, that nobody will ever come up with this idea of, of moving Yom Kippur? I, I don't know. Switching gears a little bit, I was wondering if you have any thoughts about what are the environments where ritual innovations, ritual inventions really thrive? Where do those happen? Let me suggest that that one of the best environments I've seen for for catalyzing invention uh, has taken place by bringing in artists. For instance, when there uh, have been invitationals at the Contemporary uh, Jewish Museum in uh, in California, uh, when Kiddush Cup, the Kiddush Cup was the theme, or Miriam's Cup, or the Tzedakah Box, uh, a variety of artists were given a great deal of material to study before they went off and, and, and made their creations. When the, uh, when the, there was this marvelous enterprise of creating Sukkot in, in Union Square in New York, the various, uh, artists were, were, were invited to study about the Sukkot, to learn, to learn its laws, and they actually needed to conform to its it's the laws of, of the sukkah. So I think great innovation can happen when people on the margins of the Jewish world are, are invited in and are given great resources 
spiritual and technical and, and textual and, and communal uh, as they go off and, and, and as they create. So as you're talking about artists and some of the successful strategies that have happened with Sukkot being built in fascinating creative ways in New York and, and otherwise, what do you see as some of the ingredients towards actualizing more of those successes in the future? What are the pieces that maybe the Jewish institutional world or non-institutional or both could bring together to start to encourage more Jewish ritual innovation such that it might not just happen haphazardly or whenever it does, but that it's a real conscious effort on the community's part? Do you have any ideas along those lines? Well, I'm a great believer in the spontaneity of innovation. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm a great believer in, in capturing feelings of the moment. So, so for instance, um, let's think about Jewish weddings. Right now, there are any number of interfaith couples who are deciding that they want to have a Jewish wedding, even though uh, even though the non-Jewish member of the couple has no intention of converting, often in these cases, the couple wants to have, has decided that they will have a Jewish home, although usually the couple hasn't really talked about that very much. They haven't, they haven't talked about its implications. So, so here we have a context in which Jews who might be quite peripheral in their connection are saying, hey, I want Judaism to be really present right now. Uh, so this would be a time to equip those rabbis who perform interfaith ceremonies to equip uh, those rabbis with all kinds of uh, enticements to these couples to learn more about other aspects of of Jewish life to help prepare them for a a creative uh, a creative merging of their of their traditions we generally just hope it will happen so i think one way of of sparking innovation is to notice where are people and on what occasions are people already coming to judaism's door and 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 how will that give us a an, an opening for teaching more challenging more creating more 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 fun more excitement more engagement sometimes uh when innovator when innovators either those who are naive or those who are quite learned uh uh create an, an a ritual innovation it doesn't always work at the moment it, it it can even be somewhat of a disaster but it will take us to new places that are productive. For instance, in the early days of Jewish feminism, feminist theologians were playing, and, and, and rabbis as well, were p- p- playing around with the idea of, well, what if we challenged male God language in Judaism and we brought in the word goddess? So we tried goddess. And you know what? Goddess didn't make it into the liturgy. If you look at the new reform prayer book for Rosh Hashanah, there, there, there is no goddess there. I haven't heard the goddess invoked in Jewish circles for a long time. It didn't work. However, at the time, it was a very powerful way of, 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 of announcing that the male god wasn't the only metaphor 
for for us to use. So sometimes a, a way that doesn't work is 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 provocative and useful for taking us to the next step. Oh, that's true in Judaism. That's true in a lot of realms. And as we talk about invention, I actually think of of Thomas Edison's quote about how um, in inventing the light bulb, uh, he was asked, you know how long did it take or what was the process? And I might get this quote wrong and I apologize if I do, but he says something to the effect of, you know, I, I learned how to make a light bulb incorrectly 127 times. Um, he, he tried all sorts of ways that didn't work. And in that process, eventually reached one that did. Right. And a ritual object, for instance, that at one point is very successful, uh, might not be so successful at, at another point. For instance, uh, in my synagogue, I've heard girls talking about wanting to have a real talit. And what did they mean by a real talit uh, when they wanted for their bat mitzvah? And by that they meant a, a white one or a white and blue one. And if you ask them, well, what, what's a not real talit? They would say a bubby talit. Well, what's a bubby talit? I couldn't even imagine what they were talking about. And, and they were describing the beautiful talitot that my friends and I, uh, initiated wearing, uh, back in the, in, in, in the nineties, uh, that might have been tie-dyed or had beautiful, had beautiful images painted or embroidered uh, on them. So something that just seems so, so those beautiful talitot that, uh, were emerging of, of the feminine and, 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 and the of Talit at a certain time uh, for a different generation don't don't necessarily speak. It's possible that there may be a time when um, when singing Havdalah to the tune of Debbie Friedman's beautiful melodies will just feel medieval and, and it will be time for a new song creator to create a melody that, that resonates with the sounds that delight us better. But what's also fascinating to me about your story is that um, that there's an idea of a bubby talit, right? I mean, how innovative is that? How I mean, that's what a <laughs> change from you know 40, 50 years earlier, whatever. That you know, it would be scandalous to even think that anybody owned a talit, much less that there was a kind of talit that could be so uh, out of it that it was for bubbies, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's a really cool anecdote, and um, y- you used. You used a, a word that I want to highlight. You talked about a real talit, and and I think that one piece that has come to light in this conversation is that the question of what is real Judaism, what is authentic Judaism, and and what role we we can or should play in shaping that Judaism is a really crucial one. And I'm curious to hear what to you are the parameters or what are the baseline necessities of Jewish authenticity? What makes a particular ritual or practice authentic? The word authentic in the context of any religion seems to point to a fact. Something that really belongs in the in the religion is really intended by God, is really intended by the community. When in fact... I've long thought that authenticity is more of a feeling than a fact. It's a feeling that we attribute to something that feels really real and, and, and really belonging. Let me give you an example. If you go to the Kotel now, if you go to the Western Wall, there will be many ultra-Orthodox Jews 
who will say that they are praying at the Kotel in the authentic way, that is, with men and women divided, with women being silenced, women not praying in groups, with men praying in groups, men having a Sefer Torah, having a Torah scroll, and women not having one. Well, if you go back to 1967, that didn't exist, the Western Wall as an ultra-Orthodox synagogue. So how do we call a practice that began in 1967 an authentic practice? Is it just because the ultra-Orthodox are claiming that it is? Certainly before 1948, when Jews went to the wall to pray, what they were doing was they were coming as individuals. They were offering private penitential prayers. Is that the authentic way that prayers at the wall were to be offered? Actually, as we, as we know, the Kotel is a retaining wall of an ancient temple. Uh, the authentic ritual at the temple is animal sacrifice. All this to say that our rituals keep changing and our feelings of what is and what isn't authentic uh, come about because, uh, because there's repeated practice, because there are higher, there are people within hierarchies who can claim this is how to do it right. This is how it should be done. This is how it should be done here. An authentic practice also is a practice often that is, uh, is, is, becomes authentic through love, that it becomes precious over, over time. The authentic matzo ball in your, in, in, in your chicken soup. So authenticity is a, is a term which is often used often to uh, proclaim power and ownership over a ritual, even more so than some sort of an accurate description of whether it is truly Jewish or truly Protestant or Buddhist or not. That, that's really helpful. And and one note for our viewers, in case you're curious, the one authentic matzah brai is the one my mom makes. Um, that's that's objectively in the in the universe. Um, so I just wanted to clarify that for anybody. Who disagrees? On the topic of matzah brais, when I uh, first used to go to my husband's home, and his, and his parents were not uh, were not observant Jews by by any means, uh, his mother made this matzah brai that involved a great deal of butter, and turning it over, it, it became more of a souffle. And in a very snobby way, when I was there, I would think, and, and they think this is matzah brai. I mean, really, and 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 they call this a Passover food. And now when my children and grandchildren come to my house for Passover, I make my mother-in-law's matzah brai. You know, it reminds me of the joke, which I'm sure you, you must know, but uh, there was a, that there was a synagogue and they were arguing over whether the tradition of the synagogue was to stand or sit during the Shema. And uh, eventually, you know, they're tearing themselves apart. They're about to split off into two different synagogues, but then they decide if they can find the oldest living member of the congregation who can resolve this, then they'll go by that tradition and they find this very elderly man in, in an old age home in Florida, you know, and they fly down and they ask him, you know, Mr. Schwartz, was it the original tradition of our synagogue 
to uh, stand for the Shema. And he says, no, that wasn't the tradition. You know, and they say, well, well, was it the tradition of our synagogue to sit during the Shema? And he says, no, that wasn't the tradition. And they say, well, Mr. Schwartz, this is tearing the synagogue apart. You know, we're about to split off into two different synagogues. You know, we're arguing all the time over what's the right tradition, what's the authentic tradition of our synagogue, and we don't know what to do. You have to help us. And he says, that was the tradition. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that, that, that's, that's really great. That, that, that's terrific. You know, on one hand, when I when I think about arguments like that, uh, on one hand, I think it's sad that they tear us apart. On the other hand, it's wonderful that our practices, our traditions, are so beloved to us that we want them to be done in a way that we believe is right and holy, and that it connects us to our connects us to our past and and, and to the people that we love so much. Whenever I go to um, the um, the University of Virginia Hillel at the beginning of the year and speak with students. Uh, I used to say to them, we're probably about to do something in this service that will break your heart. We're going to sing Adon Olam or Ein Kelohenu in a melody that you don't know or like, and it will feel as if the prayer isn't real. All I can say to you is at the end of your four years at the university, the melody that we sing here will become true and real. Wow, that's a really important anecdote and one that I've certainly experienced myself in my own connections to Jewish ritual. So um, were there any closing thoughts you wanted to give us, Professor Oaks? I did want to suggest, in, as, as, as you invoke Leviticus, I want to say that the practices that we learn about in Leviticus are, are hierarchically imposed. They're imposed by, by, by a male leadership. And what characterizes many of the rituals that have been, that have been invented in our era and will continue to be invented is that the authors of ritual will be women, will be, uh, possibly the non-Jewish members of an interfaith couple interfaith Jewish couple, will be potentially young people, uh, will be people who are in it, who, who are, who feel themselves to be marginal, yet they've been invited in. So a whole different range of, of ritual creators now sits at the table of invention. And what we create will one day be seen as as stodgy as uh, as, uh, as 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 stuff that's uh, Talmudic or 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 medieval or or Ren- of the Renaissance era. Uh, it'll it'll seem incredibly old fashioned, like the Bubby Dallas, and that's all for good. May us and our show and all of our contributions one day feel as medieval as the medieval time period it does. Uh, does to us. Um, I think that's a, a maybe a funny prayer, but uh, I think it's one that we've that we've come to in the course of this conversation. Um, I want to thank you once again for for taking the time to talk with us. Your book was just so moving for me personally, and I would encourage anybody listening to check it out. Um, find it at your bookstore. Find it on Amazon. It's Inventing Jewish Ritual once again, and. Um, Thank you for taking the time and thank you for all of your wonderful thoughts today on our podcast.
And for those of you who are listening, as always, I want to remind you that you can follow us on Facebook at the page Judaism Unbound. And if you have any questions or comments or follow-ups related to this episode, feel free to send Dan or myself a note at lex at nextjewishfuture.org or dan at nextjewishfuture.org. And if you have a gripe with us, if you've got something that we didn't talk about that you want us to next time, Please let us know about that too, and we'll try to bring that thought in. This has been Judaism Unbound.